Welcome to ETF Working Lunch, an ETF.com podcast in partnership with women in ETFs. We get together every other week with some of the smartest women in the ETF business, and we talk shop. I'm Cynthia Murphy, here with my colleague, Laura Krigger. Hello, everyone. And today we are going to be talking about some interesting trends in the ETF space this year. Joining us is Elizabeth Kashner, Director of ETF Research and ETF Analytics at FactSet and an avid member of Women in ETFs. Welcome, Elizabeth. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> so, Elizabeth, let's start talking actually a little bit um, about Women in ETFs first. Uh, you've been involved with this organization from the get-go. Uh, you were involved with the Speakers Bureau, which... Um, you know, sets out to make sure women voices are included in the ETF conversation on a regular basis. Um, just briefly tell us a little bit of, of how you got involved with WE, this effort of the Speakers Bureau, and, you know, how WE is connecting and inspiring women in this era of, you know, remote working, Zoom calls, and, you know, networking at a distance, really. Ah, oh my goodness. I, I feel like the pandemic would be so much more difficult without women in ETFs. It's it's one, one of the things that is keeping me sane, connected, supported, and inspired. So I'm delighted to talk about the organization and my own history with it. Um, I was um, one of the very first members to join women in ETFs. I raised my hand the minute that a call for volunteers went out. Um, I had the privilege of co-founding the San Francisco chapter. Uh, my, my favorite part of that was getting uh, women in ETFs uh, logos on M&Ms that we could give out at the, at the uh, launch. Um, Love it. Yeah. Light blue and dark blue. Uh, but, you know, it's hard to believe that that was, that was close to six years ago. Um, and since then, I served as co-president of the San Francisco chapter for two years, handed that position off to a series of very strong successors. Uh, and then uh, about two and a half years ago, Linda Zhang and I looked at each other in the lobby uh, at uh, the hotel for Inside ETFs at The Diplomat. We looked at each other and we said, one more mantle and I'm going to scream can't take it anymore. And what we were referencing, of course, was uh, the steady stream of panels that were filled with experts in the ETF industry, people who were absolutely qualified, had every reason to be up there, but who all looked shockingly alike. There were an awful lot of men and not very many women up there and not too many people of color either. Linda and I made a vow that by the next year, Inside ETFs would have more diversity um, in, in the most visible roles. So panelists, moderators to a certain extent, but you know, mostly people front and center on the stage who represent the ETF industry. And so we, uh, we worked within Women in ETFs to launch the Speakers Bureau, which is a roster. We now have uh, over 50 very well-qualified women in the US, Canada, and Europe, uh, and a little bit in Asia, who uh, we can serve as a clearinghouse for conference organizers and media representatives who are looking to uh, increase women's voices and want women who are every bit as polished and every bit as qualified as we are used to seeing on 
stage, screen, and radio. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are very happy to be able to make that match. Our roster is expanding all the time. And we've placed women at conferences, webinars, press quotes, and we, we feel like we're just getting started. Hmm. Do you find that, uh, you know, this effort is more challenging from the side of getting event organizers or all these opportunities to get insight to think about including women? Or do you think it's harder to get women to raise their hands and say, hey, put my name on the list? What has been your experience connecting the two dots? My answer might surprise you. My experience is that it's neither the women nor the conference organizers, but everybody who sits in between. Hmm. And what I mean by that is that there are certain conferences that are organized on a sponsorship model. And the, uh, so what that means is that the speaking slots are determined by uh, marketing departments at the firms who have uh, paid for their representative to be up there. So some, some ETF firm decides that um, it's, it, it's a, a good marketing move for them to have an expert sitting up on a stage. They go inside in their marketing department and they say, you know, get me somebody. And the marketing department, of course, is pretty far removed from, you know, both the women experts and from the conference organizers. So uh, what we've found in the past year or so is that we really have to work every step along the way. It's not enough to have the goodwill and solid intentions of the organizers. And uh, we have no shortage of women who are raising their hands. The problem seems to be the plumbing. Hmm. So what, what is the concrete way that you're working with maybe marketing departments to make them realize that they have the in-house talent that's a great question. And, you know, there's been a number of ways, but the primary way has been um, that women in ETFs has very strong internal organizations, including our own relationships with our own sponsors. There are many, many corporate sponsors who support the work of women in ETFs and allow us to do you know, the industry changing and vital work that we do. And we know that our sponsors' interests are aligned and that our sponsors also want to see an increasing number of women represented. So sometimes it's just a matter of having that conversation mm -hmm. and making sure that you know the right people to have it with. So Elizabeth, when it comes to thought leaders in ETF, somebody who should be on every stage, um, you come to mind. So let's pick your brain about some interesting things um, happening in the space this year. Uh, what Laura and I were talking shortly before our, our call here and if you look at 2020, we have seen a massive number of ETFs shutting down. We've seen a surprising high number of actively managed ETFs launch. We've seen the arrival of non-transparent active ETFs. And it's only July. So it's been a very busy year in the ETF space. Um, so, you know, help us separate substance from noise, um, if you will, what do you see as some of the most important trends in the ETF industry that have staying power this year that aren't just going to be hot flash in the pan fads? What a great question. Um, I, I couldn't have asked you to ask me that in any better way. Um, <laughs> you know, so, sometimes people listen to my answers and say, well, that's not as exciting as I expected it to be. Um, 
And I, I think in the long run, that is the real uh, trend that we see, certainly in the first half of 2020. Uh, there were some absolute headline grabbers, which I'm happy to talk about, and I, I think they're really important themes. But the bigger deal by far is the acceleration that we saw in ETF products across the board getting ever cheaper all the time in almost every asset class and in almost every strategy. The same song that's dominated uh, the industry for the past several years, this uh, constant race towards zero fees and um, zero cost beta exposure, really. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just to to give you um, probably the the most shocking headline number here, um, every half year I take a look at uh, flows, assets, launches, closures, and I often use a, a lens of market share. So, if you you take a particular segment, you know whether it's uh, short term, high yield U.S corporate bonds um, or uh, Japan large caps or something broader like US large cap, which is hugely competitive. And you look at which ETFs have gained market share in that segment and which ones have given up some ground. If you look in sort of the largest and most popular category, which is uh, equity funds with just plain vanilla exposure, broad-based market cap weighted, you take a look at the difference between the, the funds that have gained market share versus those that have lost market share. The weighted average expense ratio for the winners is down to eight basis points. Wow. The losers, 19. Hmm. And then uh, funds that actually closed up shop, 71. Wow. Well, okay. So, so, but then, you know, we see funds like, for example, the SALT ETF that came out that had a negative uh, fund expense ratio and other zero fee or effectively zero fee, uh, zero management fee uh, ETFs that just aren't really getting much in the way of traction with investors. How do we reconcile that, you know, this, this push towards um, cheaper and cheaper base expense ratio versus, you know, the ones that are bar bottom of the barrel and not really taking off? Uh, well, I'm not sure I would agree that the ones that are really bottom of the barrel are not taking off. I would say that you know those particular salt products have a very specific approach to, um, to fund construction and um, that that is not necessarily comparable to a, a broad-based cap-weighted ETF. Um, such as you know, some of the Russell 3000 funds or Vanguard's VTI or um, iShares ITOT. You know, I, I don't have to tell you, ladies, ETF investors are much more sophisticated than they were maybe 5, 10, 20 years ago. They're not simply looking at the fund name and moving on. On the contrary, they're using sites like ETF.com, which I'm proud to say features fact set ETF analytics data. Uh, to do a deep dive into their funds. And it's uh, it, it's easier than ever to understand the exposures of your fund. So, uh, you know, fund construction matters and it matters as much as ever. So so to reconcile yet another, you know, thing on this is the Robin Hood phenomenon, right? Where you could argue it's been a very loud 
investment community and probably not your most sophisticated investment community that might go beyond the name of an ETF. Um, apologies to anybody who invests in Robinhood. Um, so it's in that case, you know, when you see things like Jet ETF or or different things taking off where it's not about the expense ratio, how it's, it seems like there's a, a very different line of ETF investor that's emerging in 2020 specifically because everybody's stuck at home. Uh, do you think that that phenomenon has legs or is that just going to die off? Uh, what an interesting question. So I, I think you're referencing in general what we're calling the thematic ETFs, um, although so, some people will use the, the term thematic a little bit more broadly than I will, and perhaps I am in this instance. But I, I think you're you're talking about the phenomenon where there's a very niche fund that targets a very particular industry or even a sub-industry uh, that gains popularity and becomes very attractive you know, not only to, um, to ETF customers, but of course the issuers take notice as well. And there are absolutely instances where you see a product like that, right place, right time, where um, customers are relatively cost insensitive. You know, and frankly, we saw that same phenomenon uh, this past spring where we saw rush into funds like GLD or USO. I mean, obviously those are names that have been around for a long time. They're very well-established funds. They're not the cheapest in the space, right? Those funds were prized for liquidity mm -hmm. because investors really wanted into oil and they wanted into oil now and they didn't know when they were going to want out and they wanted to know that they would be able to do it at you know, as tight a spread as possible. So there are always instances where there's an aspect of a fund, whether it's a particular exposure, you know, whether it's liquidity, uh, that you know will will top investors' preferences. And uh, there's a certain segment of the marketplace that addresses that. Uh, however, you know when you sort of strip away the headlines, you realize that the fee war is at work everywhere. We saw this so clearly in robotics. Remember, mm. we saw uh, we saw Robo launch, and it was charging what ninety five basis points at that time. I'm going to have to check that number. Um, but you know, as Robo became more successful, it uh, attracted several different competitors. There's uh, I'm going to have to count, but there's four or five of them now. Yeah, and yeah, the the money is slowly flowing to the cheaper products. So I, I think what's fair to say is that innovation has a window where first to market can capture some slightly higher fees, but those days are numbered because if the idea is successful, there will be competitors and competition in the ETF market does what it does in virtually every market, you know, whether it's for shoes or groceries or consumer electronics, right? More competition pushes prices down and they start to approach the marginal cost of production. How does actively managed ETFs fit into the theme of the lower fees? Uh, in 2020, we've seen a huge number of active managed ETFs come to market, both transparent and the you know new non-transparent or semi-transparent wrappers. These traditionally have a higher fee. Uh, so what's your take right now on active management ETF space? Is it really at a, a crossroads right now? Is it really 
about to, to a tipping point, if you will, of taking off. Um, why all the the number of funds? Is is there enough demand in there for this? I think I have three answers to your question. Um, the the first is that this exact phenomenon that I'm talking about, where money is flowing on average to lower cost funds is as true for active management as it is for any other investment strategy. I have um, an article uh, to be published end of July that uh, will show a number of, of charts and tables that explain precisely how this happens. But when you do a deep dive into an asset class, whether it's equity or fixed income, you see the same thing that uh, that I just mentioned. So for example, um, in uh, the equity space in general, actively managed funds that gained market share cost on average 71 basis points, the losers 76, and the ones that closed 78. Hmm. And in fixed income, it's uh, it's even starker, where the winners were at 30 basis points, the losers were at 41. Wow. So that's a thing, right? Uh, active management is no more immune to the law of supply and de demand than anything else. So that's answer number one. Answer number two is that when you're analyzing active management, you really have to take a seasoned eye to the space. You have to know your product set. You know, FactSet defines active management as anything that holds active type exemptive relief at the SEC. And so, there's a number of funds in there that, uh, for legal reasons, do have that SEC registration, but don't fit anybody's concept of true active management. And the easiest ones in there to understand are the buffer funds. Right. The buffer funds are rules-based. Um, the rules are stated very, very clearly when you read the complicated and must-understand uh, fund material. But you know, it, it's not anything where you have a team of uh, you know star portfolio managers who are uh, doing bottom-up valuation or making sector, industry, geography, currency calls. Uh, it, it's really um, you know an an algorithmically based product, but nevertheless, it's actively managed. So when you kind of cut through and you go down to a, a smaller segment where you can really kind of handpick the um, the funds that are truly actively managed by that old style portfolio manager. Uh, what you see is, first of all, it's a much smaller set. And secondly, the flows in there, they're a bit circular in that um, there's a large number of funds where if you take a look at the largest shareholder, and uh, you take a look at the name of the fund issuer, they are one and the same. Hmm. So um, there, you know, it's it's very possible to um, pump up assets into products that um, are are not necessarily uh, competitively priced if you also own the assets that are coming in. Right. It's that whole BYOA trend of bring your own assets uh, to, to that 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 approach towards accruing assets in your products that's become so popular. We first saw it with J.P. Morgan. Um, we've seen it from uh, Goldman Sachs and Schwab, and just basically any any big issuer that has uh, you know 
assets to bring for sure. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, from the issuer's point of view, their hope is is that uh, the issuer capital becomes seed capital and that the fund becomes much more widely held. I am not sure we're really going to see that. Why not? Why don't you think we'll see, uh, you know, hasn't that been the motto up to this point? Assets beget more assets, right? Mm-hmm. All you need to do is get to that first hundred million and then boom, you're going to see it just skyrocket, right? Uh, well, sometimes it skyrockets and sometimes it doesn't skyrocket, right? So, uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a hugely competitive landscape out there. You know, active management in the ETF wrapper has the same mathematical challenge that active management in the mutual fund wrapper has in that uh, for every overweight somewhere out there in the market, there's some other participant who has an equal and opposite underweight. Only one of you is ever going to be right. And so, you know, an active bet is as likely to be a winning bet as it is to be a losing bet. So to uh, overcome the fees and the cost of running the fund, you have to be right more often than you're wrong. You know, on a, a in a frictionless world, that's only going to happen to half of the participants. We don't live in a frictionless world, so it's it's a hard sell for funds that uh, that really compete on performance. You know, and that's certainly why you've seen uh, such. Uh, adulation for Kathy Wood, mm-hmm. who has really managed to deliver the goods on a performance basis. Yeah, we, we actually had her on the show not too long ago talking about her approach towards active management. And it was just uh, really enlightening to hear her take on um, you know how, how you can do active management in a fully transparent uh, wrapper, mm-hmm. which um, you know, we've seen the non-transparent uh, rapper come out this year and, uh, you know, to, to mix success for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And, you know, just along those lines, I'm, I really um, am going to be eager to watch the flows in that space to see what value ETF consumers put on disclosure or non-disclosure. Um, I've long held that um, the ability to see what's in your portfolio is a value to the investor because of the due diligence responsibilities that the investor himself or herself will hold. Um, The valuation is really hard. It's more like an out of the money put. Most of the time it's going to expire worthless and every so often it's going to be priceless. Hmm. So, uh, you know, I I believe it's a positive value for the investor. I, I should say that more clearly. I believe transparency is a positive value for the investor. And I'm interested to see what the market clearing price will turn out to be. Mm-hmm. So beyond uh, beyond fees uh, or fee compression, uh, the interesting trajectory of active ETFs from here, um, any trend, anything else that uh, stands out to you as either overlooked or either really important and investors should take notice or issuers should take notice? I think we cannot ignore the uh, increased popularity of fixed income ETFs. And this past half year was really uh, a, a, a sort of a game changer in there. And it's not just that we had the Fed come in with uh, approximately $8 billion of purchases, uh, because fixed income ETFs for the first half of the year attracted over $96 billion. So the Fed is less than 10% of that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and it really shows up in the market share. So at the start of 2020, bond ETFs held 19 cents out of every dollar that was invested in the U.S. ETF landscape. Six months later, that number was up to 22 cents. That's an enormous increase in market share. Wow, that is huge. <laughs> yes. But is, is that just a, is that a market circumstance or is it is there a change in product set that's now available? Is it just for some reason, all of a sudden adoption, it just clicked? I mean, what's driving really this shift? Uh, well, I have a couple of answers for you. And the first is we don't know exactly. Right. FactSet does not have any tools that measure what investors are thinking. Mm hmm. You know, that, that would have to be left to the market research people, I suppose. Um, so, you know, I can tell you much more clearly what is happening than why. But certainly um, there have been a couple of things to pay attention to. You know, one is that although we had instability in both the fixed income and the equity market, the, the, the confidence returned in the fixed income market, I think, a little more solidly than it did in the equity market, not necessarily in terms of price reflection, but in terms of flows, mm -hmm. right? The flows in the equity space have been a little bit weaker comparatively. Um, certainly on the mutual fund side, uh, there's been a lot of challenges in the equity space, uh, whereas the fixed income space is stronger and is seeing more client demand. Now, in terms of the product set, the fixed income product set has been growing and expanding for at least a decade. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whereas you had uh, the building blocks in place 10 years ago, you now have quite a broad selection of products, but it's not like it just sort of changed overnight. It's been growing steadily. And, you know, it's soon going to get to the point where the niches are filled there just as much as they are in the broad based equity space. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, ladies, we are starting to run a little long, so we've got to we've got to wrap. So, did you have any other thoughts on this that you wanted to add? I would say just coming back to uh, the the cost space. What I've noticed, I've done a you know quite fine grained analysis, and there's really no place to hide from the fee war. For a long time, there was a thought in the ETF industry that you know, oh well, I will launch more complex product. And I will be able to charge higher fees for that. And that will be stickier. Mm -hmm. The first two parts of that may be true, but the stickiness is really not true. And so, you know, success in the ETF space is ever more difficult. And, uh, you know, efficiency, I think, is ever more prized in the market space. There's no place to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. That is such a good point to end this conversation with. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Um, I just love the idea of you, you, there, there's no space to fall asleep. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> um, well, anyway, uh, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you and picking your brain. It has been so much fun, ladies. Thanks. Uh, so for more on this topic or on any ETF topic or to catch up on past episodes, please feel free to visit us at ETF.com. And for more information on how you can get involved with women in ETFs, please visit womeninetfs.com. You can write to us with your questions, your comments, your thoughts, your feedback at ETF Working Lunch. That's all one word at ETF.com. On behalf of myself, Cynthia Murphy, and the rest of the ETF.com team, 
Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next episode.